And please take your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Titus. While you're turning there, uh, just to keep you posted, I've for 15 years now alternated between Old and New Testament books and have followed a pattern of short, short, long, so that we have short Old Testament, short New, long Old Testament. It's kind of where we are now. So we finished Numbers, which though the book itself isn't particularly short, the series was because I covered large chunks at the same time. We're going to jump into Titus and we'll be here for just over two months, right around there. Uh, and then after that, head to the book of Isaiah, where we may be until we all go to glory, because that uh, one might be, a, might be a little while, but it's okay. It's a good book. In the book of Titus, this is God's Word written for you today, starting chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would give us light and understanding. Your word is perfect, but we are not. Give us your help for Christ's sake. Amen. A simple question, one I think we've probably asked a hundred times, probably to different people, maybe more than that. What do you want to be when you grow up? And how many times have you had a conversation with a little one? Now, the little ones are always fun. You can ask that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? You get great answers, right? I want to be an astronaut. Well, that was the one that was popular when I was little. I guess that's not really it anymore because they don't really exist. But okay, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a, a doctor or I want to be a fireman. I want to be whatever I want to be. It's a good question. It's a fun conversation starter to give you a chance to talk with a child and to learn what's in their head, or perhaps even not a child, but a um, young person or college student, or even, I guess, an older person too. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's an interesting thing, though, if you stop and think about that question, to think about like how small the period is in human history where you could actually ask that question. Like, I mean, you don't, you don't actually think about that, but you realize most of human history, you couldn't ask that question. People weren't financially mobile enough. People weren't transitory enough. People weren't disconnected from the land enough, and there weren't enough opportunities to ever ask that question. I mean, you never really asked that question. I mean, still today, large per- portions of the world, you don't ask that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I'm going to be whatever dad tells me to be because I'm going to join in the family business. I'll be a coal miner because dad's a coal miner. I'll be a farmer because dad's a farmer. I'll be whatever it is that the family's been doing. I'll just continue in that. I suspect that's probably been the number one answer throughout most of human history. (laughs) What do you want to be when you grow up? What a foreign question to answer. 
You can imagine kids from really other parts of the world just a couple hundred years ago look at you and be like, what? What do you mean by that? I'm going to do whatever the family's done forever? I think the second thing that's kind of interesting, you kind of contemplate that question, is usually kind of the American follow-up to whatever, like, ridiculous thing the child says, which is why we ask it, honestly. We ask that question because we want the funny answer. And what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a turkey. Great. I love it. I'm all for it, right? But the funny thing is the American answer that usually follows it is, well, if you work hard enough, you can be whatever you want to be. A turkey. If you work hard enough. And it really, I mean, I guess that's really how this nation was founded. This nation was founded by a group of faithful men and women that were leaving persecution in other places and saying, what do I want to be when I grow up? I don't want to be persecuted for my faith. I want to go somewhere else and I'll make a life for myself. And manifest destiny as we moved out to the West, the same sort of question being answered of what what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be in charge of my own life. I want to be my own boss. I want to be my own king, not from England. I want to do my own thing. And if I work hard enough at it, I can be anything I want to be. The interesting thing, I think, is that really we're watching that question kind of come to its logical end to produce an irrational answer in our kind of current cultural moment. What do I want to be when I grow up? Well, really, it's whatever I want. And if I'm willing to do enough, I can be whatever I want to be. If I, if I want to be a girl, I can be a girl. If I want to be a boy, I can be a boy. If I want to be whatever it is, I can. And you can't tell me I can't. You can't tell me that my dreams aren't my own. You can't tell me that my dreams aren't good. And you can't tell me that I'm not in charge of my own life. And so we find ourselves in a moment in time with a national and even global culture that is imploding as we're watching two generations that have been raised with this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Anything you want to be. And people trying anything they can think of and finding it to be unsatisfactory. Trying the fringes of cultural normalcy trying the fringes of ethical normalcy, trying the fringes of sexual normalcy, trying the fringes of everything that we can think of to, as a nation, try to find some sort of value or identity in something that would be me. Because I'm my own boss. I'm my own king. In fact, I'm I'm actually my own God, if I'm going to be honest. What do I want to be when I grow up? Well, it's whatever I choose, and you can't tell me different because you're not the boss of me. I think actually, interestingly, we're going to find a better answer to that here at the beginning of Titus in a part of the book that, honestly, many of you have probably read dozens of times, but probably not spent that much time paying attention to. Uh, Pauline introductions are sometimes grammatically complex theologically rich, and the things we skip to get to the real meaty parts of the book. 
This is a standard introduction for a letter of the time and specifically a Pauline letter. Paul explains who he is, he explains what he's about, and then he explains who to whom he is writing. Paul writing to Titus. Welcome, grace, and peace. That's his standard structure. Paul, at this point, we don't have an exact date for this book, but we think it's later in life in his ministry. Uh, Best guess is this book is probably written between Paul's two separate imprisonments. Most of his prison letters are written in the first imprisonment. Uh, He has some in the second. We, We think it's actually probably in between those two. So he's been imprisoned, but not yet murdered for it. Uh, Also, Titus, we know one of his uh, younger men in the faith, uh, someone that he's left behind to appoint elders in Crete and to kind of help uh, superintend his church planting process. The interesting thing, though, here is that Paul begins the letter with kind of answering that question in some sense of, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, that would have been a really interesting question to ask Paul when he was younger, certainly. Paul has, I I suspect, one of the greatest minds that human history has seen. I think he's probably the single most intelligent writer of the Scriptures, obviously apart from the Lord Jesus himself. The man's mind, I mean his brain, he probably had a hard time standing up, his head was so big it would tip him over. Genius of a man. Not only a genius of a man, but having all of the cultural uh, pedigree and cachet that you could imagine. He's a Jew of Jews, but also has great connections to Rome. We suspect very likely uh, that his family probably had done a great service to the Roman Empire and been able to purchase citizenship for the entire clan. So we're probably talking about a guy who's coming from a substantial amount of wealth, who's coming with massive intellect, probably a family that has a a fairly substantial pedigree, probably what we would say here like a famous last name, maybe not quite a Rockefeller or a Kennedy or something like that, but maybe not entirely far off. Um, So much so that he's afforded the best schooling in all of the world. Um, His education leading up to his conversion is the best that you can imagine. He, He is given every opportunity imaginable. Right, again, think he's a Kennedy who went to Oxford. That's this guy, right? This is uh, the man who's presented with everything imaginable. So really interesting question if you thought about it. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we know from part of his testimony that he at least spent the early part of his life trying to be the greatest of all Jews until he met the greatest of the Jews. The king of the Jews, he meets the Lord Jesus and everything changes. And you have a paragraph like Paul writes here, and this is a marvelous start to a book about pastoring, about shepherding in the Lord's church. Paul begins with a statement about identity. What do you want to be when you grow? Is it it ultimately up to you? Are you the one that gets to decide who you are and how you are? Well, no. First and foremost, the Lord defines the doctrine of the self. Paul, smartest man on the planet? No. Most privileged man on the planet? No. Jew? No. Greek? Roman? No. no. What does he start with? 
Paul, a servant of God. You have a little asterisk, most likely, in your translation. You might have a little one if you're in the English standard that points you down to the bottom. It says, for contextual rendering of the Greek word doulos, you can look in other parts of the Bible because it's one of those kind of socially complicated words in the United States to use because it's probably more accurately translated slave. But we don't use that word because here in the South, we think of like pre-Civil War slavery, slavery based on race, and that's not what he's referencing here. What he's referencing here is somewhere between like Alfred and Batman and actual slavery. It's a a house servant, a bond servant, but then uh, to a a sense that freedom is genuinely lost. So it's intriguing that when Paul begins with his self-identification, It's not, I can be whatever I want to be if I work hard enough. It's not, I can be whatever I want to be if I'm pretty enough or handsome enough or clever enough or funny enough. Paul, a slave of God. That's an amazing introduction to a letter. I mean, can you imagine that? Like just how kind of funny that would be if we started using that kind of language today? I officiated a, a wedding yesterday afternoon. It was wonderful. The bride was lovely, as uh, you would expect. The groom was handsome. It was a very exciting day. Uh, it was fun for Nikki and I to be there. We didn't know anybody there except for the bride and groom. And it was great fun to get to meet brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you imagine how awesome it would have been if I had gone to the reception and as I started meeting people, just greeting them like, hey, I'm Michael, I'm a slave of Christ. And just watch how people are like, no, that's odd, right? Excuse me, I need to refill my drink, you know, and figure out how to get out of conversations quickly as well. But again, we live in a world where we want our identity to belong to ourselves. We want to be able to take our dreams and fulfill them. We want to take what we want and let it dominate the landscape of our lives. And what a contrast the Bible already presents. Paul, slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now again, interesting, those two terms aren't reversed. The apostle is the actual dignified one. An apostle uh, was a church officer. You have multiple offices in the church. We have deacons and elders today. Our elders are split into teaching and ruling. They had another officer, a third one in the church back then, of the office of apostle. This is a person who had interacted with Christ directly and was tasked with ministering in the church, but not just proclaiming the word of God, but actually writing it, articulating it. Their relationship, their proximity to the Word is even closer than like mine is. I'm, I'm employed to be a teaching elder, but my job is to take a word that's already written and to explain it and proclaim it. Their job as an apostle was to take the Word of God and to proclaim it and write it, record what God Himself had said. So when it comes time for him to kind of present at just first blush this doctrine of identity, it's God that's established it. Paul, a a slave belonging to the Lord Most High. Paul, an officer in the Lord's church called by Jesus himself. You remember Paul's conversion 
You remember his call, don't you? Right? Has a kind of significant moment on the road. Is he out looking for Jesus? Is he out trying to build his resume? Is he out trying to go like, okay, the seven, you know, habits of highly effective Jews, what do I need to do to kind of improve my standing in the world? No, what is he doing? He's going about his business, and Jesus kind of intercedes into his life and makes him new. So that when it comes time for one of the greatest and most gifted men of a generation to describe himself, He presents just clearly he doesn't belong to himself. And I suspect this is kind of really the the, the contrast to our current cultural moment where we ask that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then where our answer ultimately kind of ends with their desire. Whatever you want. If you work hard enough, you can be a a doctor, you can be a nurse, you could be a lawyer. I don't know why you'd want to be, but you could be a lawyer if you wanted to. You could be a teacher, you can be a, a mom, you can be whatever you want to be if you do it. But what we've done in even that simple question and answer, that simple interchange, is that we've tipped our hand that as a culture, We believe our identity is determined by the individual. My dreams are going to be what I want to be. And the rest of my days are going to be spent fulfilling my dreams. I'm not sure there's a, a more difficult or less pleasant aspect of my ministry today as to when I have to have those conversations where I kill dreams. Where I have to have a conversation where the Word of God runs up against our dreams, our desires, our longings, our personal identity. Because I've been saying my whole life, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be whatever I choose. And then when we run up against the Word of God, oh, that's so unpleasant. When we're put in those situations where we have to choose, which will I have? Will I have the Word of God? Or will I have what I want? What I desire? What I've planned? What I've orchestrated? What I've worked so hard to accomplish? Which will I choose? Will it be about me? Or will it be about what God Himself has ordained? Well, the interesting thing is that it doesn't stop here. There's a second thing for us to kind of pick up from the text as we look at Him. He's not teaching on the doctrine of identity, but we get to see it. Is even as He identifies Himself... The Lord defines the doctrine of the self, right? The Lord defines the individual. But secondly, the individual is always defined in relationship to others. Right? The individual, our personal meaning and identity, is always defined in relationship to someone else. 
Right? So kind of American history, you look at kind of how this nation formed and what's followed everything after that is we've kind of approached all of life from this perspective of, uh, you know, we are our own thing. We are our own entity. We are our own individual. I'm kind of the, the, the master of my own fate. I'm the master of my own life, I'm the master of my own desire. I am my own self. I am me and me am I, and it's kind of this one ball, the me monster. And the byproduct of this has been kind of a a rampant and uncontrolled individualism that exists in our culture. So much so now that you hear things said that you're like, well, your truth. You're just living your truth, which is the most just asinine thing I've ever heard. Right? The idea that truth can be personalized. Right? I have my truth, you have your truth. They may not match at all, but they're both true because they belong to each of us individually. Every, everything's been so personalized, it's been so individualized. The interesting thing is that when it comes time to understand the self biblically, the, the idea of a, a self-contained individual doesn't actually exist at all. That exists biblically as much as unicorns do today, or leprechauns, or any other imaginary creature. And you see it kind of in two parts the way that Paul works it out. When it comes time for him to explain his own self-identity, who the Lord has made him, he introduces us first with these two terms, the slave of God, the apostle of Jesus. He's identifying himself vertically first and then immediately horizontally. I exist for the sake of God's elect. His identification as a human is explained on two axes. One, the, ax, the, the vertical in relationship to God. Secondly, the horizontal in relationship to man. It, it's never defined in relationship to the self. If you're going back to kind of high school math, I know some of you, all, you're done. Uh, that was it. I lost you in the sermon. Some, we like to think of ourselves as a point Right, a point, a thing that exists just by itself in space and time of nothing influencing it from the outside is just me. But when you get to the biblical doctrine of me, it's like, no, I exist in relationship with God constantly. I exist in relationship with the people of God constantly. The idea of me being by myself is impossible. Again, it's a unicorn. A leprechaun. I'd say Loch Ness Monster, but that's real, so we can't use that one as an illustration. And you think about it, you go back to Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's intriguing that the very beginning of humans is to create us in the image of God. But even as God does this, he explains it in the plural. 
Let us make mankind in our image. Because God himself is constantly in relationship. This is the kind of mind-breaking part of understanding and being in relationship with a triune God. Is that the Father always is, but always is in relationship with the Son and is always in relationship with the Spirit. And the Spirit is always in relationship with the Father and with the Son. And the Son with the Father and with the Spirit. It's the fancy term theologically is mutual indwelling. Each member of the Trinity is mutually indwelling, has the other two indwelling, living within. So that all three persons of the Godhead live in perfect fellowship, in perfect harmony, and in perfect relationship. So when people are made, Adam from the dirt, Eve from a rib of Adam, we're made in God's image, and as a result, we're made with our meaning and with our identity, with our value, with our personhood, immediately, directly, and always connected to His person. We're in His image. So we can't actually say that, like, I'm the, I'm, I'm the king of my own world. I'm the master of my own domain. <laughs> I can't. I'm in the image of God. I can't get away from the fact that every morning when I wake up, I wake up in God's image. Right? Again, go back to the silly example we used of the child. What do you want to be when you grow up? A turkey. I want to be a turkey. You can't. Not only because that's weird but even more importantly, because you're made in God's image. Your value is determined by God's image. Your personhood is determined by God's image. So that we can say that no matter how medically fragile a human is, they're important and valuable because they're made in God's image. They're created in relationship to God. But interestingly, not just in that kind of vertical relationship, in relationship to God, but also horizontally in relationship to people. Existing within relationship with the saints, with those other image bearers. Paul, a servant of God, there's your obedience to God relationship there. Apostle of Jesus Christ, again, your vertical relationship. Well, why is he these things? For horizontal. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of their knowledge of the truth. That truth that it produces Godliness, it's, it's for their sake that He's doing these things. And friends, this is a, a radical redefinition of what it means to think about being a person in today's world. Our current culture, and for 50 years has said, you can be whatever you want to be. You just have to believe in yourself. You just have to work it's all about the self. Interestingly, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
mark of evil is for people will be lovers of self. It's intriguing, right? You go to all of kind of your uh, psychology resources right now, and I've been reading them this week. I don't know why, but I was reading them this week, and how many of them? It's like, well, we need to be teaching our young people to have a bigger value in themselves. We've been doing that for 50 years. It hasn't worked. It's because the identity has been trying to be rooted, like grounded and rooted on the inside, and it's not working because people aren't made that way. We're made to have meaning and value externally, first and foremost to God, and then outworked to each other. Friends, this is what we need to be teaching our children here. Can you be anything that you want to be? No. No, you cannot. You can't. I'm a little self-confession here. When I was little, I wanted to be the smartest man in the world. That was one of the things I wanted to be when I was little. How hard could I work to be that? Ah, No amount of hard work could fix that. The great line from Chariots of Fire, you can't put in what God left out, right? If he didn't put a big enough motor up there, no amount of hard work is going to fix it, right? It ain't going to help. There's nothing that can be done on that. We need to be having these conversations with our children to be able to say, can you be whatever you want to be? No! Can you do whatever you want to do? No! But you can be what God wants you to be. You can be the person that he made you to be. You can be the person that lives the way that he's called you to live. You can be the person that has the joy that he gives to his people. You can be his and happy. You can be his, but happy. That's a scary thing. It's a, scary, it's a scary day, the day that your dreams die. It's a scary day to have to confront the reality that I've wanted this thing forever and to have to give that up. Is, it's it's a, a, a scary thing. But I love the logic that God has put in His Word here. If you're going to think about it kind of intentionally, you have first the, the idea of this vertical relationship with God that's introduced, the servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Then you have the horizontal relationship of it being worked out within the community of faith uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, the knowledge and the truth which accords with godliness. But then it's immediately followed by God's character and work to show you that it's worth it, right? To show you that, that yes, to let my dreams die is a, a horrible thing, but the God who is caring for me surpasses even that. Look at what he says. So Paul's spending his life for the elect so that their knowledge of the truth would grow. Why? Verse 2 in hope of eternal life. Right? You give up your dreams in this life so that you have better ones in the life to come. I mean, how long will you live here? 80 years? 90? 
You willing to give up dreams of 80 or 90 years here to gain a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, ten million years in the future? Are you willing to obey the Lord now and find the fullness of joy later? The hope of eternal life, which God, and note, who never lies. This eternal life that he has promised, he never lies. Our God never lies. He only speaks the truth. This eternal life was promised before the ages even began. It's been planned from the beginning. And you see, actually, what's being kind of presented here, though a bit indirectly, is this contrast between all the plans that I might have for my life and all the plans that God had for creation before the foundation of the world? And which of those is going to win out? Which of those is going to win out? Is it going to be what I want? Is it going to be what makes me happy? Is it going to be What kind of fad of the day is going to drive me to some new insanity in a cultural moment? Or am I going to trust that the God who never lies, who has promised before the ages even began that he knows what he's doing and he's doing good to me? Parents, I I suggest that you have this conversation with your children regularly. Now, uh, I think many of us do, I think, a pretty good job of being able to identify things that are wrong and say they're wrong. The Bible says homosexuality is a sin. That's correct. The Bible says lying is a sin. That's correct. The Bible says gossip is a sin. That's correct. I, I think many of us do a good job of identifying sin But I suspect we don't do as good of a job, perhaps, of offering the positive replacement instead. Meaning, we teach only from the negative, and we don't teach enough from the positive. Yes, homosexuality is a sin, but you know what? Biblical sexuality is a joy. Yeah, you know, lying is a sin, but you know what? Telling the truth is really freeing. Particularly when you get, you know, COVID, have long COVID, and your memory disappears. You don't have to worry about what you were telling people because there's no lies to keep up with. I can't remember what I said three hours ago. Doesn't really matter. Just tell the truth all the time. We do a good job of identifying the negative, but maybe not quite as good of a job of, of holding forth the design aspect of the Lord has made this world perfectly. And He's made you in a way that is working obviously underneath the fall, underneath the curse. But your life is by His design. And He knows what He's doing. He understands the world better than you do. Because the reality is our cultural kind of comings and goings, people don't understand nearly as much as they pretend to. This is one of my favorite ones from this week, right? We've been over the last year, I guess, really nationally and globally having this major kind of crisis talk about the coming kind of 
global crisis and climate and the, the, the new emphasis on the green movement and how everything needs to move towards being more electric and electric cars and all those sorts of things. And we haven't really perhaps even done fully done our homework thinking if that's a good idea. This week, the Finnish government released their own study uh, where they actually looked at how much lithium and cobalt exist in the known world. And guess what? There is not currently in the known world enough lithium and cobalt to make enough batteries for the next decade. So all of these kind of movements in our government to say, hey, look, we know for sure you need to go electric with everything. There aren't enough batteries in the world to replace them 10 years later. So in 10 years, the whole movement will, by definition, end until we find a new way to make batteries. The great law of the land collapsing on itself. Why? Because we have, even in that, this perfect little illustration of people thinking we figured it out. People thinking that we understand God's reality apart from God. People thinking that we understand how everything's supposed to be. Instead of just trusting the Lord and obeying Him. And I love that's actually kind of where the thing ends. God reveals Himself through His Word. That's your verse 3 there. That's what Paul's mission is. is. As an apostle, his job is to be one of the revealers of the Word of God. He helped write it. He's proclaimed it through preaching. He's made God known. But what is God's relationship to His people? Does He hate us if we're His people? Is He uh, petty? Is He trying to, to punish us? Is He trying to make our life miserable? When He tells me I can't have the thing I want, is He just being petulant and nasty? Verse 4. Paul the Apostle, the the mouthpiece of God, proclaiming God's opinion of His people to Titus, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's not God hates you and He's trying to make you miserable. It's not God is a really bad father and is trying to keep you from having fun. He's not God who's that RA at college that's like, you got to turn your music down. It's past, you know, midnight, and you can't have your music that loud. No, He's our Father who loves us with a whole heart, a full heart, an undivided heart, because God cannot be divided, and as a result, extends to His people grace and peace out of that love. And if we had any doubts, again, Christ Jesus being the ultimate proof that Christ would go to the cross, pay the penalty for sin, so that I would not. Very briefly, some of us need to either be more honest or perhaps more careful 
in evaluating when our desires come up against the Word of God. Because honestly, some of us get angry, get angry with God, get angry with His Word, or we just choose to ignore it. Because sometimes we would never say it out loud, but we think maybe God is a little bit of an idiot and doesn't know what he's talking about. Because certainly he wouldn't know how much fun this is or how important to me this is or how much better my life will be if I had this thing or this experience Friends, that is idolatry. It's an idolatry of the self. That is the person who writes to say, Paul, king and maker of his own world, you need to obey me. That's not Paul, servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the elect, revealing God's word to his saints, grace and peace. That's an idolatry that takes me, the me monster, and elevates me to try to be king of the universe. And friends, if you do that, you will never be happy, much less holy. Because while you can admit it when you're clear-minded, you usually can't when you're not, you make a terrible God. And you yourself know it. I myself know it about myself. I'm a terrible God. I'm a terrible king of my own world. But yet, when I'm not clear-minded, I still try it. The challenge for us is this, that we as a people of God, corporately, again, remember, we're designed to exist in relationship, that we push back against the cultural moment that we live in where they tell us that we are the center of the universe, that I am the center of the universe, that we push back against that. To say that the meaning that I have, the value that I have, the identity that I have, the personhood that I have exists in relationship to God. And that God has told me to go and serve you. And so I will. The funny thing is, is I suspect that produces happier children, and it certainly produces holier children. May it be that we, together as God's saints, going forth this year and into the future, again, commit ourselves to that, fighting against, resisting against, turning against all of the individualism to find our hope and identity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you that our hope, our meaning, and our value are in Christ and not ourselves. We thank you for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.